sometimes guys are dumb. We can be oblivious, we can be clueless, and God bless us, we can even be pointless. But above all, there's one thing that we can all count on. Sometimes guys are really insecure. It's usually about our toughness. Actually, it's always about our toughness. Doesn't matter the venue, doesn't matter the situation. You want to rile a guy up or manipulate him into doing something? Suggest that the thing he isn't doing is because he isn't tough enough. He doesn't want to impress the girl over there? Bro, what are you, chicken? He doesn't want to exercise? Bro, what are you, chicken? He doesn't want to do something dangerous? Bro, what are you, chicken? One can write, and many have, countless essays on how toxic masculinity is a trap that both damages the recipients of it as well as stunts the men who are subjected to it, but today's episode is more straightforward. Today's story is about how one guy's petty grudge caused numerous injuries, altered forever the track of several professional careers, and caused what some have called, quote, the dumbest fucking idea in WWE history. That's right, we're diving into pro wrestling today. You're listening to Surreal Sports Stories with your host, Mike Ginocchio. It's June of 1998, and Vince Russo is annoyed. He's a booker and writer for the World Wrestling Federation, aka the WWF. No, not the World Wildlife Fund, but that's another story for another time. And though Russo's in a pretty plumb position as one of the head writers for the company, it's also a pretty stressful position. From the years 1997 to 1999, the WWF was going through what is now called the Attitude Era, a period where their television programming was a little less Doink the Clown and Hulkamania, and a lot more Stone Cold Steve Austin and Gimme a Hell Yeah! The bump up from PG programming to PG-13, and sometimes R, was a necessity to keep the pace with WWF's rival company, World Championship Wrestling, and it worked. The Attitude Era is considered the high watermark for WWF's television ratings and for the TV ratings of pro wrestling in general. But since it's weekly live television, that requires the bookers to work on new stuff every week. And because the Attitude Era is all about, well, attitude, there's additional pressure to come up with edgy stuff every single week. And that's before we get into the massive egos in the back. Don't let the pomp and circumstance fool you, or perhaps don't be surprised. Beneath the sparkling underwear, rippling muscles, and overuse of spray tan, professional wrestlers can be a pretty insecure bunch. Who could have guessed? So in addition to trying to compete for television time, there's also a lot of free-floating tough guy energy in the back. As one former wrestler put it, if someone gets on TV for 30 seconds only to get a pie in the face, guarantee there's five to six guys in the back going, how come I didn't get those 30 seconds? Vince Russo isn't that type of guy. He's just a writer. And by his own account, he doesn't take pro wrestling that seriously. To him, it's a job. And most of the time, he usually wrote off the posturing of the guys in the back as little more than peacocking or shooting the breeze. Well, most of the time because there was one guy who was getting on his nerves. And that guy was John Bradshaw Layfield. 
Layfield went by many nicknames in his wrestling career, eventually most famously going by his initials, JBL. But at this time in his career, he's just going by Bradshaw. He'd been a mid-card talent, aka not the smallest fish, but definitely not the biggest, in the WWF up to that point, and there was always a sense of, what exactly do we do with this guy? Eh, just throw him in there. Attitude towards him. Makes sense, because his gimmicks, with incidental differences, more or less amounted to big strong brute who beats people up and whose finishing move was him running at someone in full speed and attempting to take their head off with a clothesline from hell. Apparently, his brutishness was not just limited to his gimmicks. Even back then, Bradshaw had a reputation for being loud, self-assured, domineering, and a bully. If you don't believe me, take the time to dive into wrestler, interviewer, YouTube. You'll find dozens of former wrestlers on the record all basically agreeing on the fact that Bradshaw was a jerk. And while pro wrestling has an understanding that it's a violent profession and sometimes you have to hit people hard to make it look convincing... Bradshaw was apparently one of those guys who went right up to the line between rough but manageable and, dude, take it down a notch. And his constant posturing about how tough he was was driving Vince Russo nuts. It didn't help that Russo, a New Yorker, was particularly annoyed with just how, how do I put this, obnoxiously Texan JBL would be about it. He half expected the guy to be wearing a cowboy Stetson hat and shouting, Oh, hell yeah! Hell yeah! Russo knew that wrestling was full of wannabe tough guys. He also knew that it was full of real tough guys. You know, the ones that might not look like a bodybuilder, but have don't-mess-with-me energy. Vince Russo was firmly convinced that Bradshaw was in the former category, a wannabe tough guy. And he wanted nothing more than to see someone knock the heck out of Bradshaw for real. And then it hit him. Wait a minute. Why not see someone knock the heck out of Bradshaw for real? And so Russo pitched the idea to the higher-ups as this. We know that it's a water-cooler topic amongst the fans and even the other wrestlers about who's actually the toughest guy in the company, right? Well, why not have a tournament to decide it? Let's put together a short program over several weeks that will build into a pay-per-view event and essentially settle the question once and for all who the toughest guy in the WWF is. But to mix it up, let's add a twist. Instead of it being a wrestling tournament, let's have it be a boxing tournament. Let's make the fighting real. Reactions to the idea backstage were mixed. Jim Ross, the famed play-by-play announcer on screen and head of talent relations backstage, was cautiously optimistic about the idea. It was different for sure, and the boys in the back were always clamoring to prove that they were the toughest guy around. Plus, it could be an opportunity for some of the performers who weren't all that great at the performance part of pro wrestling. Remember, pro wrestling is equal parts soap operas and it's stuntman show. And that could perhaps use the boost of being the toughest guy around as their gimmick. It could sell tickets and maybe make another star. Although Jim Ross did have a very particular star in mind, but we're going to get to that later. Others were far more skeptical. Jim Cornette, another high-level executive in the WWF, was extremely against the entire idea on principle. Cornette is what you would call a wrestling lifer. 
someone who believes wholeheartedly in the art of pro wrestling as its own form of entertainment. He wasn't really thrilled with the way that the wrestling business had been evolving over the past decade or so, and he blamed people like Vince Russo as part of the problem. To Cornette, people like Russo were more interested in short-term shock value swerves instead of carefully nurturing and respecting the cardinal rules of wrestling. Namely, that there's supposed to be an air of secrecy and mystery to the business, and that people should be enamored with what they see in front of their faces, and not give two hoots about the backstage machinery of wrestling. Put more simply, he didn't like how Vince Russo and others seemed to be mocking pro wrestling in general, viewing it merely as a means to an end, that end being edgy, sometimes raunchy Jerry Springer show style stuff. For Cornette, wrestling was the end. But also on a less principled stance, Cornette was worried that throwing together a boxing tournament with people who weren't trained boxers might not be the money-making idea that Russo was apparently pitching it as. If he'd known that it was all an elaborate way to see an annoying bully of a wrestler get beaten up, he'd probably have blown a fuse. Nevertheless, WWF CEO Vince McMahon sensed the potential for money, and he greenlit the idea. Thus, the WWF Brawl for All was born. The format worked like this. Each match would consist of three one-minute rounds. Whichever wrestler connected with the most punches per round scored five points. In addition, a clean takedown scored 5 points and a knockdown was worth 10. If a wrestler was knocked out, decided by an 8 count rather than a 10 count, the match ended. The matches were scored by ringside judges including famed announcer Gorilla Monsoon. There would be 8 first round matches spaced out over 4 weeks worth of television, then 4 second round matches spaced out over a similar time span, then a semi-final round, and then a final championship fight at a pay-per-view. That created 16 openings for 16 wrestlers who would want to join on a voluntary basis. Throw in the fact that the winner of the tournament would receive an $100,000 cash prize and be slated to work a pay-per-view angle afterwards with the biggest star in the WWF, Stone Cold Steve Austin, and the winner of this whole brawl for all thing might end up making some serious money. In a business where former wrestler Kevin Nash once famously said, the only thing that's real is the money and the miles, this might be the shortest mileage to pick up some money that any wrestler could ask for. But it's there that things start to get weird. Let's just ignore how Byzantine and not quite boxing, but not quite MMA, but not quite wrestling confusing rules the Brawl for All have in place. And look at it from the perspective of a fan. If you were a WWF fan watching in excitement for this Brawl for All idea, seeing the tournament bracket would probably cause some confusion. It made sense that Stone Cold Steve Austin wasn't in the tournament as he was the head of the company and probably the person the eventual winner would face, but how come none of the other A-list stars in the WWF had signed up? Where was Mick Foley, the man known as Mankind, Dude Love, Cactus Jack, and possibly a man impervious to pain? Where was Triple H, the game, the man who was the cerebral assassin of wrestling? And where was The Rock, the most electrifying man in sports entertainment? Instead, we had Sabio Vega, 8-Ball, The Godfather, Mark Merrow, and some guy named Bart Gunn. All serviceable pro wrestlers, no doubt, but these were not A-listers. They were the B-listers, the C-listers, and the D-listers, guys who were hoping to make their big TV break. So already, the tournament was facing an uphill battle, with no clear 
person to watch. Actually, I spoke too soon. There was one guy that people were aware of and whom the fans were interested in seeing at the start. Steve Williams, a.k.a. Dr. Death. Williams was a former football player at Oklahoma who transitioned into pro wrestling and who'd made a name for himself in Japan as a badass tough guy. He had just signed with the WWF, and this tournament seemed like as good a place as any for him to make a name for himself in America and become a new big star. The higher-ups in WWF were also keen on Dr. Death, and they were already privately sketching out plans for a long-term program between him and Stone Cold Steve Austin. And assuming he won the tournament, things were all set. He just had to win. No problem, right? After all, he was Dr. Death. With a name like that, how can you not be a badass? The person who was really high on Dr. Death, though, depending on who you ask, was Jim Ross, who believed that this was the biggest chance to make a real star. And Ross's desire to elevate Williams was starting to rub people backstage the wrong way. As former pro wrestler and participant in the Brawl for All Bob Holly tells it, quote, Steve had wrestled in Japan for the majority of his career and had a reputation as a genuine badass. So they figured they would introduce him in the Brawl for All, he'd walk through everybody, and boom, they'd have a credible guy they could leapfrog over everybody else to put up against Austin in the main events. Everybody backstage thought it was a bunch of bullshit. JR was shoving Steve down everybody's throats, saying he was going to destroy everybody. Nobody had a problem with Steve before, but JR was putting him over so much that the boys resented him and hoped he'd get knocked out. End quote. Like I said, pro wrestlers might just be a real insecure bunch. Well, on June 29th, 1998, the first round of Brawl for All matches were held. And how did it go? Almost instantly, the shit hit the fan. It turns out, just because one has spent a career learning the careful craft of staging a professional wrestling match does not mean that that someone can also stage a successful looking boxing match. The wrestlers in the Brawl for All were all fitted in slightly oversized boxing gloves that even a fan in the stands could tell they clearly were not comfortable in. Instead of throwing crisp jabs that set up clean combinations or dazzling knockout punches, they plotted after each other throwing sloppy haymakers that made them look like they were on roller skates. And because boxing is tiring, the wrestlers got tired out easily and went to the clinch the way you see boxers do when they're tired, staggered, or trying to wear down their opponent. Often. Except they barely knew how to do that, and when they tried to utilize the clinch as a form of takedown to score knockout points, the fighters looked less like trained UFC combatants shooting for a single leg takedown, and more like drunks trying not to fall over each other on the 4th of July barbecue. Right from Jump Street, it looked like a weird combination of boxing and mixed martial arts, if the people involved had a knowledge of boxing that solely consisted of Rocky movies, and if they'd never actually seen mixed martial arts in the first place. Jim Cornette was furious. It was everything that he'd feared. First, the whole thing was an injury machine. In the first round matches alone, two wrestlers were legitimately injured, including one who'd actually won his fight but instead had to forfeit, to the point where they had to miss weeks of work in recovery. And in wrestling, missing weeks of work meant missing weeks of paychecks. One contestant, Dan Severn, won his first round fight, but then dropped out of the tournament, stating that he had nothing to prove. If that sounds unnecessarily smug to you, 
Dan Severn, in case you don't know, is considered one of the pioneers of legitimate mixed martial arts and was one of the UFC's first stars. So even the legit fighters in the batch wanted no part of this thing. Second, wrestling works on predetermined outcomes. Remember how the company was really high on Dr. Death Steve Williams? Well, he made it to the second round of the tournament by TKO as planned, where he faced off against Bart Gunn. Gunn was a bland-looking guy, someone who was clearly bigger and stronger than 99% of human beings, but who didn't really stand out amongst WWF stars. So most fans, and especially the people backstage up at the top, thought that he was little more than a tune-up for Dr. Death to go on to bigger and better things. After all, that's how pro wrestling works. When you want to establish a new monster, you feed them generic talent in order to look scary. Too bad this was all supposed to be real, though, because in the second round of the tournament, Bart Gunn knocked Dr. Death Steve Williams right the hell out, dislocating his jaw and tearing his hamstring. And as Dr. Death dropped to the canvas, so too did any hopes he had of becoming a big star in the U.S. Which brings us to point number three, the thing that perhaps pissed Jim Cornette off the most. The third thing that he realized, and that the Brawl for All showed, was that the tournament served to teach the reviewing audience a valuable lesson. No, not who was the toughest in the company. Rather, it taught the fans that every other type of match in the WWF wasn't really real, so they shouldn't take them seriously. Even a novice at watching real fights could tell that these trained pro wrestlers sucked at real fighting. So all the Brawl for All ended up showing the world was that everyone was apparently a dweeb in the WWF. That wrestling stuff? That was all fake. When it came time to actually fight, these guys were all the worst. On more than one occasion, Jim Cornette would find Vince Russo backstage and just curse him out on the stupidity of the entire idea. Guys were getting legitimately worked causing them to miss out on work and miss out on getting paid because pro wrestling is a by-appearance industry for a lot of workers. No one was becoming a star, and the fans were once more being given a reason not to take pro wrestlers seriously. It was a complete, colossal failure. Well, there was one thing that it did succeed at. Remember Bradshaw? It turned out that there was some merit to his boasting. He managed to make it all the way to the finals of the Brawl for All. And so too did Bart Gunn. If Vince Russo had been scripting this, it couldn't have come out better for him. Here was the very man he hated for his posturing in the most high-profile situation imaginable. If only the person that Bradshaw was up against in the finals had the chops to pull off the impossible. Bart Gunn, having knocked out Dr. Death, was more than capable of similarly putting Bradshaw to sleep. And on August 24th, during the Brawl for All Finals, Bart Gunn did just that, legit knocking Bradshaw out. Almost like an 80s movie, the loudmouth bully had been bested by a come-from-nowhere nobody and everyone could celebrate, right? Right? Well, as it turns out, things weren't that simple. This might come as a shock, but the higher-ups weren't terribly pleased with the fact that Dr. Death Steve Williams, the guy they'd privately picked to be the winner of the tournament, with some reports that he'd already been given 100000 before things even started, had been knocked out in the second round and effectively knocked out of ever being a star in the WWF. 
It had cost a lot of money to bring the guy over from Japan, whose wrestling companies are famously strict about letting their foreign-born wrestlers leave, and the entire investment had been ruined. Ruined, in their minds, by this nobody bar gun. The fact that creating a legit fighting tournament that could not be controlled for outcomes might have had something to do with Dr. Death's failure and therefore might have placed the blame on their shoulders seemingly never occurred to the people in charge of the WWF. Furthermore, instead of being a springboard for new stars, the tournament ended up being a springboard to the ER. As said before, two wrestlers were injured in the first round of the tournament, and in the following year, several more would get injured as well. By 1999, roughly half of the competitors in the Brawl for All were dealing with a debilitating injury that kept them from wrestling and, you know, making money. Finally, the reception to the entire tournament was unbelievably bad. Despite Jim Ross's comments that the Brawl for All was, quote, one of those ideas that looked really cool on paper, end quote, the execution was terrible. The fans drowned out any Brawl for All match with chants of BORING and WE WANT WRESTLING. Imagine that. The people who paid money to go see a wrestling show wanted to see wrestling at said wrestling show. Who would have thought? Jim Cornette was even more blunt. Quote, The stupidest idea that ever made air in the WWF led to injuries on the talent roster, led to bad feelings amongst the boys who were actually going in there beating each other up. The fans didn't care. Nobody believed it was a shoot anyway. They killed Dr. Death's WWF career, and they cost themselves millions of dollars on that one fight because they were fucking stupid. End quote. It ended in a complete failure, as no one got over with the crowd, Jim Ross would later remark sadly. Others were less courteous, with former wrestler Sean Waltman calling the brawl for all, quote, the dumbest fucking idea in WWE history, end quote. And he remarked that the only thing that the brawl for all accomplished was telling its fans that, quote, these guys are fighting for real, and everything else you're watching is bullshit, end quote. But if the Brawl for All guys were real, and their real life was unbelievably poor and sloppy, then what did that say about the company at large? I don't want to call this an example of shooting themselves in the foot, but the WWF badly miscalculated when their fans actually wanted, and severely damaged the credibility of their product with their fan base, a fan base that has a lot of overlap with other combat sports. Said fanbase would then start paying a lot more attention to this whole ultimate fighting championship company that was starting to come alive in the late 90s and early 2000s, or just stick to boxing. Speaking of boxing, whatever happened to Bart Gunn? Well, here's where that whole men are insecure thing really rears its ugly head. And not on the part of Bart Gunn. Bart Gunn had done was sign up for the voluntary tournament, do his best, and win the darn thing. If you were a performer in that position, you think that it was all supposed to end with you getting some new opportunities as the champion of the Brawl for All. But for weeks and weeks, Gunn sat by his telephone, waiting for the higher-ups to call him and tell him what their new plans for him were. No calls came. And as the weeks passed, the novelty of the Brawl for All began to pass, and Gunn knew that whenever he eventually returned to television, none of the fans would know or care about who he was. Was this all a subtle way for the WWF to pretend that Brawl for All never happened, hoping that their fans wouldn't remember it? Or was it an act of petty revenge, punishing Bart Gunn for knocking out their anointed boy in Dr. Death? Former wrestler Bob Holly sure seemed to think it was the latter. Quote, 
In the office, they wanted Bart to get his ass kicked. JR was being vindictive because Bart fucked their plan up and fucked his buddy up. They paid Bart the prize money, they'd already paid the same amount to Steve Williams, and they had to pay everyone else for their matches, so the whole thing must have cost them $350,000 in payouts without giving them the result they wanted. Steve Austin couldn't work with Dr. Death now, and they couldn't put Bart in his place. Bart had been around for six years as an underneath guy that nobody was going to buy against Stone Cold no matter what management did. Even though JR was wrong about just knowing that Steve would walk through everybody, he didn't get any heat for it. Bart did. JR said he didn't have hard feelings towards Bart, but he did for damn sure. The next thing you know, they talked Bart into fighting Butterbean at WrestleMania. End quote. For those who don't know, Butterbean is Eric Esch. 5 foot 11, 378 pounds, and has hands that are like mailboxes. He had an incredibly successful career in combat sports, and he was most famously known for one thing. Well, three things. Getting in close to his opponent, throwing an overhand right to the head, and knocking that opponent right the hell out. This was a trained boxer, the so-called king of the four-rounders, who had spent years at his craft, going up against a guy who'd had maybe a few months of boxing practice under his belt. What are the odds for Bart Gunn? I'll let Charles Wright, the man who wrestled as the Godfather, tell it. Quote, Me, Butterbean, and Gilberg, another wrestler, we were chilling. I think me and Gil were smoking, Wright said in the Talking Head segment for Vice TV's Dark Side of the Ring episode. Quote, Butterbean wasn't smoking, and we were talking about his fight with Gunn. Butterbean said, Listen, I've already told Vince, Vince McMahon, You guys are tough guys. I'll give you that, okay? But you're not professional fighters. I will beat that kid in seconds. It's two different sports. He has no chance against me. End quote. As Butterbean tells it, that might have actually been the plan in the first place. Quote, You know, Vince kind of smiled at me when I went to the ring. He knew that it was over for Bart, Butterbean said. He knew that I was going to knock him out, and he wanted me to knock him out. End quote. Bart Gunn managed to last 35 seconds before catching a cartoonishly powerful overhand right to the chin getting not completely unconscious. Less than a year later, he'd be released from the WWF. And with that, all traces of the Brawl for All were effectively stamped out of the WWF forever. So was it worth it? Vice TV docuseries Dark Side of the Ring covered the story in a 2020 episode. The key figures involved were pretty contrite. Vince Russo, while somewhat amused that his little beef with Bradshaw had led to the guy actually getting a lesson in humility being a knockout, was fully and properly contrite. Quote, Knowing what we know now about concussions, etc., I never would have pitched the brawl for all in the first place. End quote. Jim Cornette, having been against the idea from the start and thus capable of a less self-reflective attitude, was far less reserved. Quote, When you've got stupidity on the grand biblical scale, anything is possible. End quote. He also thought that the tournament not only shortened and even ended professional wrestling careers and diminished the credibility of the art form in the eyes of the fans, but that it couldn't even succeed in making the actual winner of the tournament a star. He also blamed Vince Russo for the whole thing, but honestly, 
One could make an entire series about Jim Cornette's disdain for Vince Russo, and we simply don't have the time to get into all of it. Just know that, unrelated to the Brawl for All, Jim Cornette is on record saying that he wants to outlive Russo for the sake of pissing on his grave, so make of that what you will. The whole thing, to me, just feels stupid, self-defeating, and incredibly surreal. It's also a classic example of failing to heed a cardinal rule of business. Know what you do effectively, and stay in that lane. The WWF, now the WWE, was not and never has been a legit fighting organization, and that's okay. When the fans pay tickets to see the performers, they're there to see the performers. When the fans pay tickets to see wrestling, they don't want to see weird, avant-garde, postmodernist takes on the human condition. They want to see wrestling. Just like how when I pay to see Penn and Teller perform, I don't need to see a show where they reveal that their tricks aren't actually real and that we were all stupid forever thinking that there was a possibility that they were real. That was never the point in the first place. I don't need to see the illusion broken when I explicitly paid for the illusion. The same applies to professional wrestling. Is it scripted? Yes. Are we being worked by the performers who are engaging in an elaborate charade to keep us guessing? Also yes. And is that the entire point of things? Absolutely yes. In the effort to be edgy and contrarian and outright contradictory, we don't need to have the stuff that we love overanalyzed all the time or torn down for the sake of making ironic commentary. Sometimes supporting something is much like the famous rant from comedian Patton Oswalt, who capped off a bit on the Star Wars prequel trilogy by exclaiming, I don't give a shit where the stuff I love comes from, I just love the stuff I love. Sometimes there's a place for that. And sometimes you can pull off the ironic commentary. But if the rationale for an ironic take on something boils down to nothing more than, gosh, I wish someone would knock this guy out, then you're not being ironic, nor are you offering a reasoned commentary. You're just being dumb. Sometimes we need to just remember to stay in our lane. This has been another episode of Surreal Sports Stories. Sources for today's episodes include Bleacher Report and ProWrestlingStories.com. For more information on the Brawl for All and other sordid tales of the squared circle, check out Vice TV's critically acclaimed docuseries, Dark Side of the Ring. Surreal Sports Stories can be found on sites such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Radio Public, Google Podcasts, and wherever else you listen to your shows. If you like the show, feel free to drop a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen in order to help spread the word. Thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you next time. I'm your host, Mike Ginocchio. Stay steady, y'all.